2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show two hundred and forty three. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have a little fact article by Andy Thomaswick doing the Hugo Reviews hominids this week. Then we have part two of the serial The Birdcage by Kate Wilhelm. Sneaked in there is a little promo by Films Neptune for their adventure in trying to get a film sorted out called Red. Then right at the very end we have first chapters, VN by Madeline Ashby. There was going to be a Poetry Planet, but it didn't come through. It somehow only came down in three minutes. And I know Diane's Poetry Planets are a lot longer than three minutes, so you'll be disappointed or saved. <laughs> poetry! So first up is Andy Thomaswicks, Little Hugo Review. Andy, sir. Hello, everyone, and
3: welcome back to the Hugo Review. This time we'll be covering hominids by Robert J. Sawyer, the winner for 2003. I'll start the discussion with a bit of context on the main science fiction part of this book. I'm not a theoretical physicist, but I have taken a class and read numerous books on quantum mechanics, so I like to think I somewhat understand how it works. My first introduction to the concept was not strictly academic. It was a Michael Creighton novel called Timeline. The premise of that book is that a quantum physicist develops a method to teleport back in time using his field of study, and then manages to get stuck there. The same sort of premise lies at the heart of Hominids, except instead of going back in time, here the protagonist teleports himself to a parallel universe. Just that basic premise and the fact that it has been tread many times before sort of give a general feeling for the overall bulk. The main difference in this story is that the main protagonist is a Neanderthal named Ponter Bobbit. He's a quantum physicist from another timeline that accidentally develops a way to travel between worlds. The rabbit hole he falls through then dumps him out in the middle of a large sealed container full of water in the middle of Canada. On a side note, Sawyer is Canadian. There he is met by a somewhat stereotypical cast of characters including a bombshell postdoc physicist who seems more interested in men than neutrinos, and an exceedingly shy molecular biologist who also happens to be a recent rape victim. Let me sidetrack a bit here to mention that one of the first scenes in the book is the scene where Mary, the molecular biologist, is raped. I never particularly like scenes like this in books, and for the most part the entire scenario didn't make any sense in the overall storyline until very near the end. While I understand why the scene was included in the beginning of the story, I'm still not entirely convinced that it was necessary. Anyway, back to the main storyline. Actually there are two main storylines. One follows Ponter's time on our Earth, primarily under quarantine for fear of contamination. At least the Canadian government learned something from War of the Worlds. The other follows Ponter's research partner and bisexual male lover from his Old World, who is accused of his murder. The second is by far the more interesting of the two. The world the Neanderthals live in is described as almost a techno-utopia, but under strict Orwellian surveillance. All members of the species are bisexual and live with their same-sex partner for the majority of the year, only meeting up with the opposite sex during what is the equivalent of a self-imposed mating season. They haven't begun destroying their environment, though they are at almost a higher level of technological development than modern-day Earth. The Orwellian aspect is evident in the AI cameras that are implanted in every member of society and monitor their every move, except for when the two researchers are in their underground cave where they keep their quantum computer for no apparent reason. The misfortune that befalls Ponder's partner seems to be a tool Sawyer uses to show that even under constant observation there will still be crime but the message doesn't come across as clearly as he might like. After all, it was his plot device that created the problem in the Neanderthal's judicial system in the first place. While his lover tries to save himself and his family from sterilization rather than jail time, Ponner is locked in quarantine and attempting to understand the strange culture that he was dropped in the middle of. The most helpful human in his quest to understand is Mary, the molecular biologist, and the other humans are basically side characters who literally lock themselves in a room to have sex for a large portion of the book. Mary's main purpose is to try to help him understand the intricacies of the homo sapien culture that developed in this alternate world. Despite the slightly awkward premise of a living Neanderthal wandering around the modern day, it is obvious that Sawyer uses Ponter's foreign eyes to perform a general critique of human culture in its present state, from destruction of the environment to all-encompassing consumerism. While you may or may not agree with what he has to say through this social prism, The fact that it's so blatant that he's doing so can grate on a more jaded reader, who has seen all of this in different guises before. I'm not the only one who seemed annoyed by the soapboxing that goes on throughout the novel. Of the novels I've done so far, this is the one with the worst outside reviews, by far. In fact, the highest rated Amazon review is a two-star, from an anthropologist who basically tears apart a few of Sawyer's arguments that were presented throughout the book. The professional reviewers didn't give it much more slack, some even seemed surprised that it won the Hugo for that year. I will tend to agree with the general consensus here. It's not that I didn't enjoy the book, it's just that when compared to some of the other ones in this series, it can't really hold its own. I won't give it a thumbs down, but neither can I give it a thumbs up. It's actually also part of a larger trilogy called the Neanderthal Parallax, which might add some different perspective to the social prism. Or at least clear up some of the more eccentric ideas that are presented in hominids. But that's it for this edition of the Hugo Review. Next time I'll be covering American Gods by Neil Gaiman, the winner for 2002. Until next time, make sure that if you're building a quantum computer, please put it underground.
2: There you go. This is what I'm, I'm liking Andy's little reviews here because now, yes, we're all kind of familiar with those what I mentioned the last time when Andy did one. We're familiar with those, you know, the recent ones, but it's, it's getting back in time there now, and that's what's kind of special now. You know, you kind of forget these... Classics that have been out. So Andy, thank you very much. Next up is Part Two of The Birdcage by Kate Wilhelm. I'll also put a link on to Kate's Infinity Box Press as well, where you can get all Kate's books in ebook format. As you know, this story is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Birdcage Part Two by Kate Wilhelm. THE BIRD CAGE, PART 2
4: They had ordered take-out burritos and found that neither of them was interested in food. It was dusk, the endless day closing down, she thought, listening to him on the phone again. "'Sorry to bother you,' he said, and disconnected. He punched in the next number. He had not talked about his flashback, nor had she asked any questions— It didn't matter what it had been. None of that mattered. Reliving the past, experiencing long-forgotten incidents, it didn't matter. What was terrifying was that they were experiencing Cody's past, feeling his pain, his fear, as well as their own. That was impossible. And it was terrifying. Mike, Trevor said, my name is Trevor McCrutchin and I have to find my brother Cody. It's extremely urgent that I find him. Can you help me? He listened for a moment, then said, It's a family crisis. Our mother is in intensive care following an accident. She is in very critical condition. He has to be told. Jean bolted up in her chair, where she had been slouched. Trevor nodded to her and grabbed a notebook from across the table as he listened to the man on the phone. I don't know what he's doing, Mike was saying. He was taken inside, off the grounds, on special assignment for Dr. Sumner and Dr. Wooten. One of them can probably reach him for you. Gee, Mr. McCrutchin, I'm sorry to hear about your mother. Sure, Cody would want to be there with you, a time like this. Let me give you their numbers. Trevor wrote the names and numbers, thanked Mike, and put the phone down. His hands were sweating. The Markham Research Group, he said hoarsely. He was working there, but now he's doing something for two doctors on the inside. That guy, Mike, is his boss. His mind was racing feverishly. Doctors? Medical doctors? Researchers? For a land development company? He wiped his hands on his legs and picked up the phone again, keyed in the first number and reached voicemail. Dr. Sumner, this is an urgent message. He could hear the desperation in his own voice as he gave the same information he had told Mike, his name, number, emergency, intensive care, critically injured mother. He disconnected. Without pause, he calls the second number and repeated the message on Dr. Wooten's voicemail. Now we wait, he said, when he put the phone down again. "'Jean woke with a jerk, sat upright, confused, then remembered. "'At eleven they had gone to bed, she in a room across a hall from Trevor's. "'Several times during the night she had come awake, "'once getting up to check, make certain he was still there. "'And now it was six in the morning. "'When she looked across the hall, he was sitting on the edge of his bed. "'Together they went to the kitchen, and he put on coffee. "'Hungry?' "'Not yet,' "'Later. I have to go home, shower, change my clothes?' "'Me too,' he said. "'We'll eat something afterward. "'I can't call them again before nine, I guess. "'There's plenty of time.' "'She drove to her apartment, talking all the way, "'and he sat in her living room while she showered. "'She left the door open and he listened "'to make sure the water got turned off. "'They didn't linger any longer than necessary.' then back to his house, where she sat listening in the living room while he showered and dressed. "'This is how it's going to be,' she thought, bleakly, when he emerged. She went to the kitchen with him to stay nearby while he scrambled eggs and made toast. Neither had anything to say as they ate breakfast. At 8.30, his phone rang. Dr. Sumner was returning his call. "'I have to see him,' Trevor said." My brother, where is he? He has to know about our mother. Mr. McCrutchin, I'll give him your message, and as soon as possible, he'll get in touch. What does that mean, as soon as possible? Dr. Sumner, I'll get the police to open up that place, wherever it is. What have you done to him, with him? There was a long pause, then Sumner said, I'll come to your place. We can talk. Half an hour? Give me an address. When Trevor disconnected, he said furiously, He's coming here, so help me God. If he stalls, I'll have the cops take over. Grace had listened to Trevor's frantic call twice, then deleted it. Earlier, she had adjusted one of the drugs, and she waited to see if the spike had been affected. At ten minutes after nine, on schedule, there it was. Increased activity where there should not be any. Wearily, she started the temperature adjustment. It would be a long, slow process to bring him up to normalcy. She knew as little as she had known when she started on her new young subject. Now it would depend entirely on his subsequent tests and his overt behavior to determine if he had suffered any ill effects that could be detected without an actual brain examination under the microscope. Trevor opened the door to admit Dale Sumner. He looked to be in his forties with receding dark hair, mild blue eyes, laugh lines at his eyes, a slightly stooped stance, and he looked worried, harried. His handshake was surprisingly strong. "'That's Gene Biondi,' Trevor said, leading Sumner into the living room where Gene was standing by the sofa. "'Look, Dr. Sumner, I have to talk to my brother.' Our mother is critically hurt, and he has to know. That's the bottom line here. Mr. McCrutchen, please calm down. If your brother is working with Dr. Wooten on a special project, it may not be possible to reach him immediately. But I can assure you he's not in danger, not in trouble. What do you mean, if he is? Why don't you know if he is or isn't? Who's Dr. Wooten? What special project that won't let him use a telephone? "'I'm on vacation,' Sumner said, "'all this week and next. "'So I don't know exactly what's going on, "'but I do know that there's nothing at all dangerous "'in Dr. Wooten's research. "'That's all I can tell you at this time.' "'I'm calling the cops,' Trevor said. "'He yanked his cell phone from his pocket, "'then stopped moving. "'Jean saw the blank look come over his face and screamed. "'Trevor! Oh, God, not again!' (laughs) "'What's wrong with him?' Sumner asked, moving a step closer to him. "'A form of epilepsy?' "'No! Help me get him into a chair!' Together they maneuvered Trevor down into a chair. He didn't resist, nor did he help in any way. He sat upright, his phone in his hand, his eyes open but blind. Sumner knelt beside him and felt his pulse, straightened, and asked, "'Do you know what's wrong with him?' His pulse is racing. He could be having a heart attack. She felt tears burning and wiped angrily at them with the back of her hand. I don't know. He doesn't know. It happened to me, too, and his mother, and Elise, and she hanged herself. And there could be others out there. Miss Biondi, please, calm down. We should call 911. Get medical help for him. She shook her head. It's about Cody. It's always about Cody. She felt Sumner's hand on her arm and wrenched away. What are you doing to him? What's happening to him? Miss Biondi, Jean, I don't know what you're talking about. What happened to you and to his mother? What's wrong with him? Please just sit down and tell me about it. They were standing at Trevor's side. He had not moved. Jean took the cell phone from his hand and put it on the end table. With her gaze fixed on Trevor, she backed up to the sofa and sat down, and she told Sumner what had happened to her, what had happened to Trevor. He could have burned down the house, and himself, she said in a dull voice. His mother drove off a road without applying the brakes. She didn't try to stop, and now she's in critical condition. Elise Bronstein was Cody's lover years ago, and she hanged herself. She looked at Sumner for the first time since starting to talk about it. He looked disbelieving, remote, as if watching a specimen on a slide. That was how it would be, she realized. No one would believe anything they said, just memories surfacing. Coincidence. "'I felt wet and freezing, but I was dry,' she cried. "'Cody was wet and freezing.' Trevor felt his legs burning, but his legs had not burned. Cody's legs were burned. His mother's message before they took her to surgery was to tell Cody she was sorry. She looked at Trevor's still figure. He's feeling whatever Cody was feeling then, whenever that was. How long does he last like that? Sumner asked, looking at Trevor. I don't know. Sumner went back to him and felt his pulse at his eyes he sat down and watched trevor without speaking again he's waking up jean said and hurried over to trevor his eyelids were fluttering and he shook his head opened his eyes with a blank look on his face trevor it's all right she said you're okay abruptly he lurched to his feet upsetting her balance She fell backward, pulled herself up, only to see him staggering, running to the hall and the bathroom. Stay here, Sumner said sharply and followed him. Trevor held onto the counter by the sink, trembling, his eyes closed. He was barely aware of Sumner's presence until he heard his voice. Are you ill? Are you all right? I walked in on him, Trevor said in an agonized whisper. Him and a girl. I felt... He opened his eyes and yelled, "'Get out of here! Leave me alone, damn you! Leave me alone!' Jean was outside the door when Sumner came out, almost as shaken as Trevor had been. "'Is... is he all right?' "'I think so. We'll wait for him to come out.' He wiped his forehead, then said, "'Jean, please tell me again. Tell me what's been happening to you, to him.' It was a long wait before Trevor returned to the living room. He was pale, pinched-looking. "'Tell me where he is, now!' he yelled at Dale Sumner. "'I'll take you there,' Sumner said. "'Come on.' "'I'll sit in the back,' Trevor said at Sumner's car. "'Sit up front, Jean. Then, with Sumner driving, Jean said, "'You have to tell us what's going on, what Cody's doing, where we're going.' She tried to control panic, but heard it in her voice. Stay calm, Jean," he said. It isn't dangerous. We're a research group, sleep research. It's good research, legitimate research, and very important. We're looking for a way to prolong life through a cold sleep until cures can be found for various diseases, leukemia, cancer, Alzheimer's. Cures will be found in the next decade for many diseases, but many people will die first, and we're trying to save their lives. What does that mean, cold sleep? Cryogenics? No, it's been determined that certain heart attacks, certain strokes can be controlled and even cured following a short period of lowered temperature for the patient. We're trying to extend that period for much longer times, months possibly even years. Not cryogenics, just a carefully maintained cold period above freezing, but low enough to slow metabolism almost to a standstill, prevent cellular damage, other adverse effects. You're using Cody in such an experiment? She whispered. Is that what you're doing? Why the secrecy? He didn't even tell his own brother or his parents, anyone. If it's legitimate... Why the secrecy? We require a confidentiality oath for everyone who works out there, Sumner said. PETA, the animal protection rights people, we use chimpanzees for our research. They've been fine, not damaged, but that group could try to break in, liberate them, and someone would be killed. Decades of research would be set back or stopped completely. She twisted around to glance at Trevor again. His face was still averted, his gaze apparently out the side window. She bit her lip. This was worse than before. Whatever he had seen, felt, experienced, was worse than before. You've stepped up from chimps to people, she said bitterly, without knowing what might happen. You just used a man. He made no response, and she said nothing more. They had left the city, were heading west, out into the foothills of the coast range. He wouldn't have ridden his bike out this far, Jean said after a lengthy silence. No, he didn't. He was in a carpool with several others from Portland, Sumner said. Dr. Wooten might have picked him up for this test, but I don't know that. Right, she said even more bitterly. You're on vacation. You don't know what's going on. They turned off the highway onto a county road and soon after that turned again, this time onto a gravel drive posted with private property signs. After a short distance, they came to a high iron gate with a sensor that started to blink as he drew near. He held up a card to be scanned and the gate swung open. He drove into the compound of the research group. They were in a narrow valley that widened as he continued driving, and before them appeared a large building. He drove around to the side where a dozen other cars were parked, passed them by, and went on to a smaller parking area with only three cars. "'We're here,' he said. He used his card at the door, then led them through a labyrinthine of halls, opened a door, again using his card, and stepped aside for them to enter an office.' The rear wall was made mostly of windows with a park view, a desk, several comfortable chairs grouped at a coffee table, television, a counter with a coffee maker, and cabinets made up the furnishings. "'My office? Please wait here for a few minutes,' Sumner said, going to a door on one wall. "'I'll be back soon.' He left them in the office. Jean walked to the windows and caught in her breath. "'Trevor, come here,' she said. "'Look!' There was a park, a round table with a big umbrella, chairs, and off to the side, a barred area. She could see two chimpanzees on the other side of the bars. Grace looked up in surprise when the door to the monitoring room opened and Dale Sumner walked in. I told you to stay away, she said sharply. You're on administrative leave for the time being. Why are you here? I have two people with me he said. One of them is the brother of the guy you have in cold storage, and he was going to call the cops. Oh, my God. What did you tell them? More to the point, he said, is what we're going to tell them. How far along are you? Recovery. I started the procedure this morning. Not good, he said, frowning. The brother wants to see him, to hear him say everything's hunky-dory. I need ten minutes she said. The temp is climbing, and in ten minutes either we'll see the spikes or we won't. He rubbed his eyes, examined the various monitors for a minute, walked to the one-way glass to observe the sleeping man, then said, I can't stall them for long, Grace. Let them in here. Let them see him sleeping and explain that it will take another two days for full recovery to be complete, that it would be dangerous to try to rush it. They won't recognize a thing they see or even begin to understand what they're looking at. And, Grace, we have to talk. After we get rid of them, we have to talk. There's something you have to know. What have you already told them? Basically a broad outline of what we're doing. Prolonged cold sleep. The chimps are fine. He's fine. No glitches. Everything's fine. He turned to leave. I'll bring them in and do the talking. You all right with that? She nodded. I'll turn off the brainwave monitor. I don't want them to question the activity. Damn right you don't, he said. The spikes would be on record even if she didn't stand over the machine, she knew. But she wanted to see it. Know now if the spikes stopped. Know precisely when they stopped. She turned it off as he walked out. Grace could sense their hostility when Dale brought the others into the room. Trevor looked like his brother, she thought distantly, shaking his hand. But Cody's eyes had been dancing, his big smile engaging. His brother's eyes were as cold as ice, his face a mask. The young woman was a mystery. His girlfriend? Cody's girlfriend? She was very pretty and as hostile and suspicious as Trevor— Dale took them both to the observation window, where they stood without speaking for several minutes before they turned away. Every bodily function is being monitored around the clock, Dale said, motioning toward blinking lights and lines on LED screens. The recovery procedure is underway and is absolutely normal in every aspect. It takes about three days to return to a normal state, and that process can't be rushed without grave risk to the subject. Did you see our chimps out in the compound? There are six, and we use them repeatedly, without ill effect. When can I talk to him? Trevor demanded. How cold is he? We keep the subjects at about 45 degrees. That's been the optimal temperature after many trials over the years, Dale said smoothly. Not a single subject has suffered at that temperature. This research is in its 20th year, and it will continue for many more years before we're satisfied that we can offer it to the general public, with all the variations of individuals taken into account. Your brother is our first human subject, and there could be thousands more before we can go public. Trevor's cell phone rang, startling them all. Grace cried, Not in here! "'Dale, get him out of here!' "'It's the equipment,' Dale said, "'rushing Trevor to the door and out, with Jean at his heels. "'Sorry,' he said after the door was closed behind them. "'We make it a rule never to take calls in there. "'No electronics are allowed in there.' Trevor was paying no attention as he answered the call from his father. He spoke briefly, then said, "'They're moving my mother to a private room.' She's conscious, and I can see her in about two hours. I have to go. Grace came from the monitoring room, and Dale said, I have to take Mr. McCrutchin back to town. He turned to Jean. Why don't you stay here and tell Dr. Wooten exactly what you told me, what happened this morning? She can fill in details about Cody's role. I can't, Jean said. I'll drive him to the hospital. I'll take him and wait to bring him back, Dale said. "'Stay here and get a little rest for a few hours.' "'Trevor nodded. "'You need to rest a little,' he said to Jean. "'It's okay. Let's go,' he said, turning to Sumner. "'Grace listened to them, bewildered, "'and belatedly she nodded also. "'Please, Miss Biondi, I could use some filling in, "'and I'm sure you can, too.' "'Jean looked at Dale Sumner. "'You saw him. You know.' You have to be careful. I know I do, he said quietly. I'll bring him back as soon as he's ready. It was too surreal, Jean thought, sitting at a table in a park, watching chimpanzees grooming one another, scrambling up a tree in the distance, coming to the bars to gesture and make noises at the woman across the table from her. She had watched Dr. Wooten hand one of them a bag of peanuts, return to the table, Listen to her say, "'They're as spoiled as brats. "'They expect a treat whenever I come out here.'" Jean had told her everything she had told Dr. Sumner, and Dr. Wooten had not made a single comment. She had listened without expression, revealing nothing. She seemed old, gaunt and unkempt, with wrinkled pants and shirt, as if she had not changed clothes, slept, or looked at herself in a mirror for a long time. Her hair was gray, short, and in need of a shampoo. "'Why did Cody agree to it, become the first human subject?' Jean asked. Her real question was why had Cody trusted this woman. "'I'm not altogether certain,' Dr. Wooten said. "'Money, of course. Mr. Markham paid him well, I expect.' and there's a guaranteed monthly payment for the next two years as long as he keeps coming in for routine tests, physical and psychological. He said it would get him through the rest of his education. But I think it was more than that. Something else. Being part of something bigger and even exciting. I hardly knew him, Jean, but he was a very willing subject. That Mr. Markham... Why is he doing this? He's dying, and he's very rich. He set up a foundation to keep the research going into a distant future. Perhaps he's just a philanthropist and wants to do something worthwhile with his money. She told the lie easily, persuasively, and marveled at how reasonable it sounded. But he had set up the foundation even if it was to ensure that funding would not get cut off while he was in a cold sleep, delaying death. She could not tell this young woman that Markham was a man who profoundly feared death, or that he hadn't given a damn about Cody or what happened to him. She could not tell Jane that no one knew yet what had happened to Cody, how it might affect him, that it might even destroy him. "'I'll put on some coffee,' she said, rising.' "'I often sit out here and have coffee, sometimes lunch. "'We have a very good cafeteria, by the way. "'If you begin to get hungry while you wait for your friend to get back, "'we can have lunch sent to the office.' "'After starting the coffee, she hurried to the monitoring room "'to check the brain waves and groaned softly when the screen came on. "'There was the spike, right on schedule. "'She reached for the control to hide the screen again,' but drew back and peered more closely at the peaks, the duration. Seven minutes. They had lasted only seven minutes before subsiding again, half as long as the others. Thank God, she said under her breath. Thank God. At last they had a clue, their first clue. At the table outside, Jean felt a lassitude creeping over her. She was so tired, she thought so very tired. Trevor was exhausted. Dr. Wooten looked equally exhausted. She was surrounded by people near their limit of endurance. She pulled herself up straighter, yearning for a bed, for a long, peaceful sleep. Dr. Wooten had said that only she and Dr. Sumner used this little park that was off-limits to the rest of the staff and everyone else except the ground crew that came to tend it. How nice to have your own private park, she thought, yawning widely. She would have put a hammock up, used this bit of privacy to get in a little nap now and then. Her eyelids were getting too heavy, and she closed her eyes. Just for a moment, she told herself. Dr. Wooten returned with a coffee tray and stood silently watching the young woman, pitying her, because she knew she had to do everything in her power to make her dismiss her own experience, make her put it out of her mind, forget it again, attribute it to coincidence. Not yet, she knew. Hear what the mother had to say about her accident first. Hear what Cody had to say when he woke up. It couldn't be true, she told herself. It couldn't have happened the way Jean had described it. An impossible event, series of events. Improbable as it might seem, they all had to be attributed to coincidence. She made a clatter putting the tray down, and Jean woke up with a start. Grace had returned to the monitors two more times. The first time, a flutter of motion in the brain waves had been recorded. And on the next hurried check, the line had been gently undulating, hardly a ripple. She left the screen turned on after that. And now it was time to have another look, and more than anything in the world, she wanted to see the spikes resume. "'I'll be back in a few minutes,' she said to Jean, who was in the office. "'Make yourself comfortable, or go back out to the park if you like.' Jean nodded. Trevor had been gone an hour and a half, much of the time spent driving to the hospital, she knew, and it might be another hour or longer before he returned. She wished she had gone with him.' Not knowing if it had happened again was almost worse than watching it happen. And she worried that she could have it happen here, with Dr. Wooten, and it frightened her. They might send her to a hospital or give her a shot or something. Of course, Dr. Wooten didn't believe her, although not a word to that effect had been uttered, but still, it was unbelievable. She might think Jean was having some kind of seizure— and do whatever doctors did when people had seizures. In the monitoring room, Grace watched the last few minutes pass, not holding her breath, but feeling almost breathless.
5: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
4: Then, the wave changed. She rushed to the cold room without thinking about a coat, and she stood over Cody McCruchin and watched his eyelids reveal rapid eye movements. R.E.M. Sleep. She let out a long breath of relief. He was dreaming. She remained at his side until she was chilled through and through, until the movements stopped again. "'Thank God!' she said under her breath, back in the monitoring room, rubbing her cold arms briskly. His dream time had been four to six minutes shorter than normal, but even that was all right, she decided. He was still very cold. Everything's fine, she told Jean when she returned to her office a few minutes later. Right on schedule. But you can't say when he'll be awake and fully aware, Jean said accusingly. That's what you said before. No, I can't. I can predict the progress of my own test when I control the various physical aspects of it, but every individual is unique, and when he's back to normalcy, he'll be as unpredictable as everyone is. Jean turned away to gaze out at the park again. No matter how hard she tried to get Dr. Wooten to admit to anything, any contradiction, she had a way of avoiding a direct answer, while making her response appear reasonable. When Trevor and Dr. Sumner returned after three that afternoon, Trevor went directly to Jean and said, "'Mother's in a private room now. "'She doesn't remember a thing before the accident. "'She was driving and woke up in the hospital. "'They said it often happens like that, "'amnesia for an accident, before it happens, how it happens. "'She's going to be okay, what they called guarded condition.' In the hospital for about a week, probably, but the real crisis is over. She didn't mention Cody? No. I told them I tracked him down out camping with buddies in the Olympic wilderness, out of touch until late next week. They're good with that. He looked at Dr. Wooten then. How's Cody doing? How's it coming? He's fine, responding exactly as expected. Mr. McCruchin, there's nothing you can do here. "'Nothing to do about him until he's fully back to normal, "'and that won't be until Monday. "'Why don't I give you a call when you can see for yourself that he's all right?' "'He hesitated, glanced at Dale, who nodded in agreement. "'If anything untoward happens, I'll call you,' Dale said. "'Why don't I take you and Jean back home now and let you both get a little rest? "'I give you my word that I'll call if anything happens.' Trevor looked at Jean, and she nodded also. There was nothing they would learn here, she was convinced, and she wanted to leave, never come back, never spend another minute with Dr. Wooten. Okay, Trevor said. You have my cell phone number, day or night. You know what I mean. Later, with Dale at her side, Grace watched the recorded brainwave again. There was no need to explain what they were seeing. When the wave fluttered and returned to an expected line, Dale exhaled. "'The bird can't get out again,' he said softly. "'It's back in the cage.' "'What does that mean?' "'Don't you remember?' (laughs) he laughed. "'Several of your horny grad students were sitting around doing what they do at that age.' "'arguing about mind-body, "'and you said the mind is a bird in a cage that has no door.' "'He gave her an appraising look, then said, "'You found the door, Grace, and you opened it.' "'Abruptly she wheeled about and left him in the monitoring room. "'She walked through her office and out to the table "'in her own private park. "'The chimps chattered to her, and she ignored them. "'It was something she could have said.' Something she had always believed, had to believe. There had to be another explanation, or no explanation at all. One of those inexplicable mysteries without a solution. She was still sitting there when Dale came out with a tray, glasses, ice, water, and a bottle of scotch. He poured drinks, dropped in ice cubes, handed one to her. It's mostly water for you. You're so beat a real drink would floor you. Without pause, he continued, "'We can't let a son of a bitch like Markham do that,' he said. "'That kid in there is as innocent as a baby compared to Markham "'and capable of destroying anyone he ever interacted with, "'however harmless that interaction was in the past. "'How many people has Markham already destroyed, one way or another, "'whether or not they're dead now?' Their own humiliation, fear, whatever, in addition to his rage and fear, his sadism, power-lust, bloodlust even. How many of those poor sods would withstand an invasion by him? You believe what they are saying? I saw Trevor McCruchin experience his brother's orgasm in his first, most intense sexual encounter of his life, he said evenly. He happened to walk in on them, unaware, but there it was. I saw him, Grace. I believe every word. He lifted his glass and said, "'Cheers!' She drank and wished he had added more scotch. She wanted oblivion for a time. "'It depends on Cody's condition when he wakes up,' she said in a low voice. "'If he's a raving maniac, Markham will back off.' She did not voice the rest of the thought. Dale knew it as well as she did. If Cody appeared to be as normal as the chimpanzees always were, Markham would demand to be next. If not with her, then with her replacement. And his money would guarantee that her replacement would obey his orders. A bird out of its cage. A predatory, merciless bird who had hurt countless others already and would never hesitate to crush anyone who got in his way. Grace, I call down for dinner for two, and I have a bottle of pretty good Pinot Noir. We'll eat, then you'll hit the bed while I man the battlements for tonight. Tomorrow, we'll know what we have to do. I want you to leave, Dale. Go home the way I told you. I don't want you mixed up in this. He drank deeply, put his glass down. I'm already in, and I intend to stay in. "'God, how I wanted to say something like that to you "'when you were a real slave master over me as a grad student. "'The hours you made us put in. "'No, my dear mentor, it's sleep for you tonight "'and tomorrow decision time. "'Our decision time.'" Sunday afternoon. Grace watched Cody shift his position slightly, not awake yet, but in the process of waking Most, but not all, the tubes and sensors were gone. They would continue to monitor his blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen level, and basic brain function for the next few hours, and they would keep him hydrated. The room was a comfortable 72 degrees, and now a warm, preheated coverlet was over him. He shifted again, and his eyelids fluttered, then opened. He yawned as he came awake with the blank expression of anyone waking from a long sleep. Very quickly, the blank look was replaced by comprehension, awareness of her presence, of the bed, the room. He yawned again. Is it over? he asked. Yes, Grace said. How do you feel? Thirsty? My mouth is dry. I have chipped ice for you, she said. "'No liquids yet, but ice will help. "'I'll raise your head a bit first. "'She did that, then put a spoonful of cracked ice to his mouth. "'Do you remember any of it?' she asked. "'No. Out like a light, then awake. "'Did I really sleep a week?' "'Yes.' "'I'm a little cold. "'I know. Your temperature is not quite up to normal yet, "'but it's getting there. Any dreams?' "'No.' It seems impossible that it was a whole week. Easiest cash I ever picked up. He grinned broadly, then yawned again. Oh, why am I still sleepy? Induced sleep isn't the same as regular sleep, she said. I'm not sure why. Maybe that's a whole new area for someone to explore. She remained with him for ten more minutes, talking easily. "'Asking few questions, which he answered readily. "'Then she said, "'You'll want to nap a while, I imagine. "'There's a pull-bell on the rail, if you want anything.' "'He was yawning when she stood, "'watched him another few seconds, then left. "'In the monitoring room again, "'she leaned against the door with her eyes closed "'until she felt Dale's hand on her shoulder. "'He swung her around and hugged her fiercely.' "'My God, Grace!' he said. "'You did it! He's fine! Not just fine, he's great!' "'Not so soon, Dale. Not so soon.' "'You know it, and so do I. He's great. Let's have a look.' He propelled her to the glass, where they saw that Cody had rolled to his side with his knees slightly bent, one hand barely visible on the edge of the cover. He was sound asleep. "'His next wakeful period will be the real test.' She said, faintly, but without conviction. She did know it. Cody was fine. "Right," Dale said with a laugh. "I'll make two CDs, one for Trevor McCrutchin and one for Markham. I'll take Trevor's over to his place and come right back. Those two poor souls have to have some of the pressure relieved before they explode. You probably won't wake up before I get back." She agreed. He would probably sleep for several hours and wake up thirsty, and maybe even a little hungry. She stayed in the monitoring room when Dale left to make his CDs, leaving one camcorder turned on the way it would be for the rest of the day and night, recording every twitch, every sound that Cody made. Frequently she moved to the window to watch him sleep, then sat down again. He was snoring softly. Decision time, she told herself. It was decision time. Trevor and Jean watched the CD with Dale, both of them silent and tense. When it stopped, Trevor said, "'He just rolled over and went back to sleep?' "'That's what happens,' Dale said. "'Seems incredible, weird, but that's the same way they all behaved. "'He'll doze off and on the rest of the day and sleep well tonight.' Tomorrow he'll be able to eat a little, just light food, bouillon and apple juice, post-surgery diet kind of food for a day, and gradually get back on to real food, whatever he wants. He'll be wobbly tomorrow, but on his feet, in the real bedroom prepared for him, and then out to the park for walks, and so on. He leaned forward in his chair and said, Trevor, he's great. Really? Fine. No after effects, nothing negative to report in any way. No dreams? "'Jean said. "'What if he starts remembering dreams after a day or two?' "'Dale shook his head. "'It doesn't work that way. "'You're much more likely to recall dreams "'within the first few minutes of waking up than later, "'and even those you recall tend to fade out of consciousness "'with each passing minute.' "'He was grinning as if he'd just won a bet "'or pulled a fast one or something,' Trevor said. "'Yeah,' Dale said. "'Look,' I've been thinking of what you two told us. And it makes me want to hit the books again about synchronicity. You know, the Jungian theory? Too vague in my memory to recall much of it. Things happen that appear to be connected, but the connection can't be found or confirmed. Something like that. You both happen to have vivid dreams, waking dreams about Cody, hallucinations, or, as you said, flashbacks. Then your mother was critically injured? You couldn't find your brother? And more flashbacks. Could it be that your anxiety was making your imagination work overtime? Who knows? But now that you know Cody's okay and your mother's going to be okay, that node in your brain can relax again. And Elise? That woman who killed herself, Jean said. She's no one's imagination or hallucination. Dead is dead. Obviously, she was unstable if she tried it before, and who knows what pushed her over the edge this time? A new engagement? The man in her life? Something else? There's always the logical explanation, isn't there? Jean said bitterly. Dale regarded her soberly for a moment, shook his head. No, there isn't always. And as a scientist, it drives me batty. But I can accept it and make a stab at the things that maybe we can explain. It's the best I can do, and I accept that. He looked at Trevor then. Are you going to tell Cody the things you told us, the flashbacks? Trevor drew in a breath, exhaled before he said, No. If he doesn't remember, I won't tell him. No point in bringing up painful memories for him. After Dale left them, Jean said, Do you accept his explanation? Synchronicity? Hallucinations? Waking dreams? Trevor shook his head, No. And neither do you. It happened, and we'll never know how or why. But it happened, all of it. And we'll both always know that and live with it. Can you accept that? Yes, she said in a low voice. There's no other choice, is there? Our secret. Back in the monitoring room, Dale said, They'll be okay. He's an electrical engineer, practical, and he knows damn well what he experienced, and that there's nothing he can do about it or say to explain it. She'll manage to put it out of her mind and get on with her life. Grace nodded. Some things you just have to live with, she thought. Cody's still sleeping, vitals normal, temp still rising. I've been thinking, Dale, and I know what I have to do and how to do it. We have to kill Markham, he said. Yes, she said. We have to kill him. A week later, after Trevor had come to get Cody, who was as happy and trouble-free as a child with sparkling blue eyes, Grace stood at the window observing Markham on the waterbed. The temperature of the bed, of the whole room, was at 41 degrees. The only sensor monitoring him was for brain function. He's gone, she said. Together, she and Dale put pajamas on Markham's body and moved him to the bedroom where the thermostat was set at eighty-two. She took the glass with a little orange juice and dissolved sedative out and brought in an identical glass with half an inch of orange juice. She removed her surgical glove and handled the glass, then replaced the glove and pressed Markham's fingers on it in several places and put it on the nightstand. Dale, also gloved, "'wiped a small pill box clean and pressed Markham's fingers on it, "'put it on the stand next to the glass. "'We're done in here,' he said. "'They left the room and returned to the treatment room, "'where Dale pumped out the cold water and replaced it with tepid water. "'They were ready for the sedated chimp to be brought in "'and the new procedure to start.' A police lieutenant took Grace's statement in the park, sitting across from her, along with a detective with a tape recorder. I know this has been a shock, the lieutenant said. Just tell us exactly what happened, why he was here. He often came to watch the procedure, she said. He was funding the research center and took a great interest in our work here. Sometimes he took a nap in the bedroom he had set up. He said he was tired and would just sleep over all night this time. He asked me for some orange juice to have with his sleeping pill. I never gave it a thought about the sleeping pill or his fatigue. He was very ill, you know. And I assumed he was managing his own medications, so I didn't think about it. I took in the orange juice and put it on the nightstand. I removed the bedspread and turned down the bed for him. I asked if he would want dinner later on, and he said no. He just wanted to sleep. I went out and back to work. We had just started with the subject that day, and there was much to be done, to be observed. I never gave Mr. Markham another thought, until late the next morning, when I realized he had not come out. I found him. She knew that forensics had gone over the room, that the lab tests would show a few grains of his prescription sleeping pill in the pill box, that the juice in the glass would show nothing but juice. His body would have registered a little cool, indicating that he had died soon after going to bed. They had seen the chimp on the waterbed, stared at the lights and lines on the LED screens without comprehension, had questioned her and Dale separately, compared notes. "'What kind of research exactly are you doing here?' the lieutenant asked. "'Basic sleep research, trying to determine the optimal temperature for restful sleep,' and especially for patients recuperating from surgery or awaiting transplants. Sixty-five, sixty, higher, or a little lower? She nodded toward the compound. They are our subjects. There was a little more, and when he seemed content, Grace said, Lieutenant, he was a great man, a benefactor to humanity. He knew he was dying, and he wanted to do something that would persist and help others. "'He desperately wanted to conceal the fact "'that we use chimpanzees in our research "'for fear that misguided people might object. "'As you can see, our subjects are not mistreated in any way. "'It's important to keep them healthy and active "'or the research would become meaningless.' "'He nodded. "'I don't see any need for that to come into it, Dr. Wooten. "'He was sick, dying, probably in pain.' since it seems he had deliberately stopped taking his meds. Then he took too much sleep medication. Maybe he decided it would be best to go that way, in his sleep like that. She continued to sit in the park as dusk fell. The chimps became quiet, and a bat squealed overhead. Dale joined her. We have to start further back, she said. As soon as those anomalous patterns show, we change one of the parameters, and if it shows again, conclude the trial. I know, he said. I'll be going home soon. Are you going home? No. I'll sleep on the sofa tonight. Don't stay out here too long. You'll get chilled, or the mosquitoes will find you. He leaned over and kissed her cheek. See you in the morning. She remained there until the stars appeared. And she thought, the cage door had been opened, and now it was closed, and it must never be opened again. The evil bird that was in Markham's cage was locked in place or not, but if his death had opened that door finally, the bird had flown far, far away.
2: there you go what a conclusion thank you kate Kate, honestly i kind of thank you no thank you so much for letting starships over have that story i'm gonna try and sneak a few more off you if that's okay i'm I'm good at that again i'll put a link on to kate's infinity box press and to kate's facebook page do pop over there and you know there is some great books in kate's you know history of writing please check out some of them the one i kind of you know keep on harking back to is that just that? Oh, it's just gorgeous. Where late the sweet birds sang. You know, please, if you haven't tried any of Kate Wilhelm's stories, you know, get that. Get it in audio or get it in book format. Or get it in ebook format. <laughs> Next up is a little promo for a Kickstarter project called Red, or the film is called Red. This is by Neptune Films.
5: Hi, I'm Danny Coleman. I'm a writer and director from London, and right now I'm the chief creative officer of Films by Neptune. We're on Kickstarter, trying to raise $50,000 for our debut feature film, Red. The film is a contemporary urban thriller based on Little Red Riding Hood, and it stars Jodel Ferland of Silent Hill and Twilight Eclipse, and Claudia Christian of Babylon 5. We have all the ingredients we need for a really unique film, including a dynamite crew, an all-star cast, and a distributor ready to release the film worldwide. All we need now is the funding, and that's why we turn to Kickstarter. Kickstarter is a crowdfunding platform that works on a pledge reward system. Backers, that's you, can pledge any amount from a dollar up, and in return you get rewards from the film. At $25, the reward is a DVD once the film is complete, so it's just like a pre-order. At higher pledge levels, you get to be more directly involved. For example, if you pledge $300, we'll credit you as an associate producer, and if you pledge 1000 you get to appear on camera as an extra. The thing about Kickstarter is that it's all or nothing. If we miss our goal even by a little, we don't get a penny. And that's why we need your help. Our fans are loyal, but we need more support. It's not just about the pledges and the rewards, it's about seeing a film come to life from that very first dollar. You can watch me go slowly insane on my daily vlog. You can ask questions and get answers directly from me, Jodell, and Claudia. Your input can even help shape the film itself. This kind of opportunity to really get involved just doesn't exist anywhere else. So please, follow us on Twitter at Films by Neptune, visit our website at red.filmsbyneptune.com or support us directly at kickstarter.com slash filmsbyneptune. Above all, share the campaign, pledge what you can and enjoy being a part of bringing this film to life.
2: Do you know what I love as well, you know, it just to have that kind of gumption, do you know what I mean? Not gumption, but just like balls to do it. Do you know what I mean? Films are just like, oh, scary big projects. And wow, go on there. I'll put a link on to the Kickstarter page for Red. Please, you know, pop over there and help them out. That would mean a lot. So finally, we have First Chapters, and it's VN by Madeleine Ashby. Hello.
6: My name is Madeline Ashby, and this is VN. That's little v, big n, coming out July 31st from Angry Robot Books. VN is the story of Amy Peterson, a self-replicating humanoid who eats her grandmother alive at kindergarten graduation. That happens in the prologue. This is the first chapter, called The Ugly Parts, about what happens after that. I hope you enjoy it. Amy woke on the floor of a cage that hummed. She tried moving her legs and kicked the fencing nearest her feet, igniting a spark that jolted up from her toes to her teeth and left her so rigid even her eyes couldn't move. She hated being more conductive than organic people. Careful, someone said from outside the cage. It's rigged. The man wore a blue uniform and held a scroll-style reader between the thumb and first finger of each hand. Its anonymous blue glow made his expression hard to read. He looked organic, She could see his pores and the patchiness of his hair. Other clades had advanced plug-ins for differentiating humans. They used thermoptics, or gait recognition, or pheromone detection. Amy just looked for the ugly parts. Where am I? He didn't even bother putting down the scroll. You're being detained. Amy tried moving again. She had to do so carefully. Her limbs were grown-up limbs now, and they were much longer and clumsier than the ones she remembered. Finally, she sat with her knees to her chest and looked around. She sat in a kennel like at an animal shelter, a rectangle of white linoleum bordered by black chain link. Across the room was another set of kennels stacked two rows high. In the center aisle sat an empty cage, shaped more like a cube. Its floor was black. In games, Amy had had escaped far more challenging environments than this. In fact, she could have easily designed a more intimidating space given the time and the tools. She checked for laser turrets or acid sprinklers, but found none. Maybe the whole room had a mutable magnetic field. It would certainly explain how they'd kept her asleep, and why they bothered with an organic guard. Without a helmet, he'd be vulnerable to the field and start seeing things. Did that mean the field generator was being reset? Were there other vulnerabilities in the system? She decided to take stock of other resources. She wore a bright green jumpsuit. It didn't seem particularly sturdy, much less fire or acid-proof. Far at the end of the kennels was another person in the same jumpsuit. She couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl just by looking, but it had a very big shape over which the fabric stretched tightly. It wasn't moving. "'Where are my parents?' She tried to think of something more intelligent to say. "'They should be here. I'm a miner.' This time the scroll did fall, and a hand strayed toward his taser. The guard's eyes had the dead, blank look of someone watching late-night shows. "'I don't know how it is in Oakland, but where I come from, miners know how to behave themselves.'" Amy had nothing to say to that. She looked at her new prison slippers. She had never, never thought of her mother's feet as big, but now that she was wearing them, Amy wondered how her mom got around without tripping. "'How had she never noticed details like this before?' Where was her mother now? Was she still repairing the damage to her body? May I please call my parents? I think I get a phone call. People who get arrested get a phone call, right? Now the guard stood. He lumbered over to the kennel and gleaned close without really touching it. This close, his humanity was more obvious. Burst capillaries in his nose, silver hairs sprouting from a mole beneath his left ear, sweat stains blackening the blue of his shirt. I think you're failing to to grasp the enormity of the shit you're in. Now, if you know what's good for you, you'll sit tight and wait. It won't be long now. It won't be long until what? Amy asked. He straightened up and pulled his shirt down where it had bunched up over his curling waistband. He wore a yellow gold wedding ring. The skin around it was puffy and red. He must have started wearing it years ago when his fingers were slimmer. "'You didn't have to tell me about being young,' he said. "'It's already on your record.' "'So you know I just graduated kindergarten?' "'He nodded nodded slowly. "'Yep, so I figure maybe you don't know that all UVN were designed by a bunch of Bible thumpers.' "'Amy shook her head. "'I know. They wanted us to take—they wanted us for after the Second Coming or something, "'to take care of everybody God didn't like.' "'That's right. That's why you've got all the holes and such, "'so people can indulge themselves without sin.' Amy's attention scattered over several simulated outcomes to this conversation. It cohered on the one in which he opened the cage to touch her, and she wove around him and got away somehow. As though he had run the same simulations in his own mind, the guard shook his head. He held up one hand. Don't worry, kiddo, I'm a grown man, I don't play with dolls. He leaned down a little. What I'm saying is, I don't know if they left behind some piety programming or what, but if they did, you had better make peace with your God. Amy's body remained very still, but her mind raced. They were going to kill her. She didn't know why. She had been trying to help. Her granny had been hurting people, and Amy had stopped it. Maybe that was the problem. Maybe her granny belonged to somebody important, and Amy had eaten her. That wasn't her fault, either, though. She'd only meant to bite her. But Amy's diet left her so hungry all the time. When her jaws opened, all the digestive fluid came up, a whole lifetime's worth, hot and bitter as angry tears. It ate the flesh off her granny's bones. By then, Amy couldn't stop. The smoke was too sweet. The bone dust was too crunchy. And the sensation of being full, really full, of her processes finally having enough energy to clock at full speed was spectacular. Being hungry meant being slow. It meant being stupid. It felt like watching each packet of information fly across her consciousness on the wings of a carrier pigeon. But her granny, tasted like Moore's Law, made flesh. I didn't know it was so bad, Amy said. I really didn't. I swear, I just couldn't stop myself. I know, the guard said. I used to work corrections before I got this job, and that's what kids in your situation always say, organic or synthetic. Amy hugged her knees. She supposed organic kids wanted to curl up in a little ball in this situation, too. There won't be a trial or anything? Of a kind. Tests, probably. Lots of tests. Tests? That was something. She had to be alive if there were going to be tests. I get to live? He looked her up and down. Part of you does, I guess. Amy pinched the skin of her arms. If you couldn't brag in the brig, where could you? I've got fractal design memory in here. Even if I'm cut up, my body remembers how to repair itself perfectly. I'll come back in one piece no matter what. Oh, believe me, dollface, I know. I've seen it happen. You put some via and shrapnel in the right culture, and it grows right back, like cancer. He snorted. But whether what grows back is actually you... With all the memories and all the adaptations, that's like asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Amy imagined her skin sliced thin as ham, suspended in the shadowy clouds of VN growth medium. Maybe she wouldn't even miss her mom and dad. Never once seeing their faces or hearing their voices or feeling their arms around her would probably hurt a lot less if she were smashed into a million pieces. Red lights washed the kennels in a sudden, cough syrup haze. "Shit," the guard said. He thumbed off his scroll, rolled it shut, and stuffed it in one shirt pocket. Then he pressed open a panel over his shoulder and retrieved a shotgun. Frowning, he snapped it open and sniffed the rounds. Apparently pleased, he marched down to the kennel, holding the other person. "This you are doing?" he asked. "You boys, your boys know where you are." "Tinga la cabron." "'Yeah, same to you, pal. I know exactly what they're doing with you later. they are going to smoke your ass.'" He stared up at the ceiling. "'Serial behind him, another door slammed open, knocking him forward. "'He stumbled, and the gun clattered to the floor. "'An alarm filled Amy's ears. She covered them. "'Now she watched three women walk in through the door. "'One aimed a can of spray paint at the guard. "'She misted him with it, and he began to collapse.'" The woman caught him and laid him down tenderly, arranging his limbs as though for sleep. It must have been some kind of drug in that can. Amy heard no screams and saw no blood. What she did see frightened her more. Granny, three of them. Now Amy did skitter, skitter backward in her little kennel. She watched the three women walk forward single file. They each wore her mother's face, but every other detail shouted, Wrong! in Amy's head. The tightness in their shoulders, the alertness of their gaze, their mismatched clothes, and the hungry way they looked at her. Up close, she saw the plastic embedded in their flesh. It poked up at odd points, black and pink and green, just visible at the thinnest stretches of their skin. They peeled her door away. Sparks hissed harmlessly off their thick gloves. You're coming with us, one said. Well, that was a reading from the first chapter of VN. If you'd like to know more, you can find me at com or at MadelineAshby on Twitter. That's Ashby, Alpha, Sierra, Hotel, Bravo, Yellow. Thank you for listening.
2: And that is today's show, 242 in the bag. Thank you so much. Just as a note and how we are developing with District of Wonders, it's going full steam ahead. Anyone think, well, what's your of District of Wonders? What's this? This will be the central hub for everything in kind of what we do over at kind of Starships so over HQ. There will be the, the Tales to Terrify with Larry. Then we are setting off the two new shows which are coming soon as well. That's what it's full steam ahead with them. Crime City Central and Protecting Project Pulp. I put the ing on protecting. That's the name we've settled on as well for that. And like I say, we're, we're now in the kind of process of gobbling up stories and getting narrated. And we've got logos done and everything like that. So do look out for them. I'm going around and, and emailing all the kind of people that's, you know, being very kind to be subscribers to Starship Sofa as well. And, you know, for a fun drive, try and keep we're going, keep this old, this old girls getting some baggage at the minute. <laughs> So if you want to be you know, part of that and, and help keep all what's going on here in the District of Wonders, that would be fantastic. Do drop us a donation. Until next week, I would just like to say goodnight from me. Will our heroes
7: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement?
0: Shuttle set for watch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1...